You're listening to the Mortgage Reports Podcast, where we reveal tips, tricks, hacks, and knowledge to help you buy a home, refinance, or invest in real estate. The MortgageReports.com is here to help you buy a home. From helping you find grants to cover your down payment, to popular loans for borrowers with low income or iffy credit, get the resources you need delivered directly to your inbox. Sign up for the Mortgage Reports newsletter at themortgagereports.com slash email. Craig Berry here with the Mortgage Reports podcast. And today we're discussing the state of our current housing market and how it compares to the one we've experienced previously just before the major housing crisis that happened roughly 15 years ago. Today, joining me is Mike Hardy. Mike is a managing partner for Churchill Mortgage California and Nevada Team, a top 1% in the nation $100 million origination team. Mike is also the principal and co-founder of Cyrus Opportunity Zone Fund. Uh, Mike has spoken at conferences and events in front of audiences of over 30,000 people. Mike has been quoted on Fox Business News, and he's been interviewed by USA Today. Mike Hardy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, look forward to our conversation. Thanks, Mike. I do as well. Let's just get like right into it and just kind of get some of the basic details out of the way. Mike, how did you get into the mortgage industry? So uh, in- interesting story. Like a lot of people, you-, you find yourself in the mortgage business kind of by accident. I was a pre-med undergraduate, realized through my junior year of college, I had zero desire to go to medical school. So I ended up picking up a business minor and just love the world of business. I ended up working as a financial advisor for about five years uh, out of university. So my transition into mortgage came through a buddy of mine uh, where the two of us were young guys. I'm an advisor. He's in the mortgage business. And I just suddenly got curious about what is possible in the mortgage business. How does this work? And started asking all kinds of questions and pretty quickly realized that there was a blue ocean strategy that I saw to really be an advisor for people in the world of real estate and help manage debt and show how people can build wealth over time and just all the things that are sort of beyond just the transaction that have to do with building wealth and efficient structuring of debt to help build that wealth. So it was a transition, but it started from being a financial advisor and then seeing a path that uh, I thought would be kind of a cool path to go down. You know, and and that makes sense. A lot of, I don't know about you over your career, but a lot of the relationships that I have developed with folks, uh, it's, there, there's just a close parallel with the the financial advisor aspect of it. So it makes it a very interesting industry to be in for sure, depending, because, you know, you can, you can get into it. You know, some people I talk to get into it because they, they heard there's good money <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, and then other people, it's because they just really like making dreams come true with home ownership. And then there's the other side of it, which is what you mentioned. And it's more of a like a financial planning and, and how to build wealth through real estate and so on. So there, there's a lot of different reasons to get into it, but all of them are, uh, they're kind of cool. You know, I, <laughs> I really love three different things. I, I'm a people person. So I'm fascinated by human behavior. I'm a math guy. 
and really more conceptually. I, I mean, I, one of my favorite classes at the same time I took a, a, a trigonometry class was consumer math back in high school. And it was just like, this is common sense stuff. Like I could, I could do things with this and then real estate. And so the mortgage business has always been an amazing mix of people, of numbers and of real estate. And my uh, motivator was, you know, of course, to build a better life for me and my family, to see a blue ocean strategy, as I mentioned earlier. But I thought it would also give me a kind of a pulse on how to build and grow in real estate and build wealth in addition to just the debt management side, which came fairly naturally. So that's the backstory. It's been a wild journey since that time. But yeah, I love everything. Yeah. I love everything about it. Well. You know, I don't know how many other people that are listening feel like trigonometry is common sense. I think you might be blessed there. <laughs> you know, some of us are, are more gifted in math than others. You know, it's, it's interesting. And we'll get into this a little bit more, too, as far as like you and your team building. But a lot of people, when they first get into the mortgage business, they think that it's a um, it's more of a finance and math related industry. And then there's a lot of people that then figure out, oh no, this is a people business. You know, this is something that where it's more about dealing with people and having to understand how to communicate and they have to develop a whole new level of skills. Uh, so when you have a little bit of both, and it sounds like you do, you know, the ability to communicate and, and, and you like people, but you also are well-versed with math, it definitely makes things a little bit easier. That's very true. And, you know, I think that I like to think of it this way. There's really kind of five big life events that people have. And, you know, it's getting getting married, you know, maybe graduating from college, having, having kids, starting a business, um, buying a home is really one of those big events. And I think I have to protect myself against this because we've done so many loans over the years. But this is a pivotal point for somebody that sets them on a trajectory of building wealth. Once you're in the game of real estate that I, I think most people don't appreciate or totally understand. I mean, just sort of the, the compounding. If you look at, you look at the majority of millionaires that exist across this country, the overwhelming majority of that pool is through real estate. And then also small business owners, it, it seems that real estate is always a part of that equation. And so, but there's two separate things in my mind. So I'm also a believer that a healthy home environment is essential for unlocking possibility and purpose. And, you know, just sort of when you, when you have a clear, a mind that can look into the future and go after things, you can't do that from a place of complication. You have to do that from a place of clarity. And I think a healthy home, healthy families, healthy homes, in my opinion, that's something that I think is part of the service in addition to the wealth building is creating safety and security and clarity that opens up and unlocks potential for, for kids. Um, and the, the home process is part of that. So all these things kind of tie together for me. And I, I think without healthy homes and healthy families, we underserve what's possible for ourselves and for how we can contribute to this world. So there, there's a little bit of additional philosophy that uh, is important to me that I thought I'd share. So, you know, as you know, moving on, there's a lot of people who are comparing today's housing market to the housing market that we saw in 2007. 
And there's a lot of opinions about that. We're going to see a repeat of a housing collapse. There's opinions uh, about mortgage rates and what they're going to do. Uh, there's a lot of opinions about every time I, I open up social media, there's some people who are saying now's a great time to buy. And a lot of people who are saying uh, that would that's the worst time to buy. You know, there's many wildly varying opinions on where we are right now compared to where we were. So let's just start with this. How would you say that today's housing market compares to the housing market that we saw in 2007 and 2008? Oh yeah, it's categorically different. I've, I've got about 400 hours of research into this topic alone. Um, and we've done a lot of public facing presentations. That's where some of the news outlets were, were being quoted with is to understand the difference. So, it, you know, to sort of speak to the heart of it, I, I always go back to the basics. You know, what, what's the supply and what's the demand? And if we ever want to get an idea of what's going to happen with housing in the future, it's like we have to look at four different things. We have to look at what is the underlying supply? What is the current and future demand? What is the nature of the credit environments that exist since, you know, about uh, 70, 70%, 73% of all buyers use credit to some degree, 27% of cash. And then what is the affordability, which is a big one. And so if we're, if we're going to like just line those four things up side by side for today, back compared to the great recession, guess what? Today we have a dramatic undersupply of homes, right? Under a million of inventory. In you go back to you know oh oh seven oh eight we had a ridiculous oversupply of homes like you know upwards of four million I think if I remember correctly today if we look at so that's on the supply side if we look at the demand side on the demand there was little known fact but there was a dramatic fall off of new buyers coming into the marketplace based on the demographics if you look at if you look at the the uh, traditionalists and then the baby boomers. And then the X generation and then the millennials um, and then, you know, Gen Z, the X generation, there was a rapid fall off of birth rates. And if you forward that birth rate into like, when is that pool of buyers going to actually come to the marketplace or, or sort of that vacuum in the marketplace? You know what it was? 2006. So 2006, 7, 8, 9 and 10, the typical birth rate of people coming to the marketplace dropped off. Like, so almost like if you have a lemonade stand and you know there's 100 cars going by and all of a sudden there's going to be only 50 cars going by for a while, you're going to sell less lemonade. So like the same thing happened in housing, way lower demand with a glut of supply. Credit, we all know what happened. You know, there was, uh, you know, I don't know, upwards of a, a third of all the product was adjustable rate loans that move with the marketplace, right? And, you know, if you compare credit to today, um, it's the cleanest paper that we've had, you know, in decades and there's more equity in homes. And I mean, we, we, we've helped about 5,000 families over the last five years with purchase or refinance. So we have, you know, data, plus we have lots of, you know, firsthand and anecdotal evidence. Um, and the only one that's the same, and it's even a little bit worse now is affordability. And so a lot of people think because of two reasons, because housing prices ran up pretty high. A lot of people say, I've seen this pattern before. It runs up high and then it crashes. It ran up high again. It must crash. Okay. But what they're not looking is the end of the surface. Way less supply, way more demand. What is the same as affordability? And what does that mean? Well, 
That means that people need to live somewhere. And if they can't afford to buy a house, what do they do? They find roommates and they live with their parents longer. And then they figure out a rent or they move out of state or like, you know, whatever it is, water seeks lowest level. So from an affordability standpoint, it's a huge pain point. But you think about it, if you have 100 homes for sale and in the past you had 100 buyers and now you have 150 buyers, but 30 of them can't afford it, you still have more buyers than homes. And so that, that even with the unaffordability, so there's pent up demand of a lot of people that want to buy a home, they can't afford it. And so the households are getting kind of backlogged. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. When I graduated from college, I lived with, uh, I technically still live with my parents, right? Because I was, there was, I was part of their household. And then after graduating myself and four buddies rented a house. So we added one household. What if the next year, all of us markets, good rates are low enough. We can afford it. We all go buy homes. Now there's five households added, but if it's not affordable, you know, what we're just going to do, we're going to live together longer, right? Until we have enough income comes up. And so that's, what's happening. The, the factors to crash the market just do not exist unless there's some kind of a black swan event or, you know, if, if rates ratchet up much higher, and it's more because people get spooked. There's such an imbalance of supply and demand. We're short nationwide, somewhere in the range of like 4 million homes. Um, there's a, I mean, think about it. There's a million homes for a population for sale. Half of them are under contract. And there's a population of 330 million. The support in housing is ridiculous. So that would be my answer on that. I know that's a long-winded answer, but uh, it's the basics of supply and demand for me. Well said. You know, there's been a lot of experts who have gotten it wrong. And, you know, and I, I can't remember if it was if it was Barry Habib or if it was some other uh, folks or, or experts, quote unquote, that said that, you know, what what was going to happen with the housing market with regards to interest rates? Now, I heard several times that interest rates by mid-May we're going to be in the mid fives, like they were going to come back down. And obviously that didn't happen. Uh, what have been some of your surprises that you've seen or, or what have you been surprised about in 2023 with regards to housing or mortgages? Yeah, I think, I think that the life tends to like equalize over time. And so, and also Something else I learned, I think this is from my dad, it was markets can stay irrational longer than many, oftentimes people can stay solvent. So plan for times of insolvency. And even if something, like that's something that I'm intrigued by on the behavioral science side is people stay irrational for longer than you expect. So if you look back to even through the Great Recession, look at, and you look at the massive amounts of money and intel that was put into funding and financing loans that would just made no sense whatsoever, that irrationality took place. In fact, that's what the big short, one of my favorite books is, was written about uh, Michael Lewis is things stayed irrational for a, like a year and a half, two years, like silly irrational. Okay. And so I, I think that a lot of times people underestimate how long something, even when it should correct to the mean, doesn't because of a whole series of forces. So 
you know, whether, and I, I'm a huge fan of Barry, Barry, uh, Barry Habib. I've, I've followed him for years. Logan Montashami, uh, Mike Simonson from Altos, John Malden. I've, I've been to all his conferences. And I just, when I look at these guys, here's the thing, they're right, but it's kind of like sometimes the winds blow one direction or another for a while. And so it might take them a little longer to be right. You know, it, it same thing. It's like, if you're, if you're, if you're at war, and you have a plan and you're going to go to war on something, there may be adjustments that it takes place to execute your plan. Um, so I do think Barry's right. And, you know, I follow his predictions on inflation, um, on, you know, the spread between the 10 year and the 30 year, the jobs report, you know, the Fed's action. There's just so many conflicting forces that are against it. Maybe it takes an extra six months for it to play through, but, uh, what we can never do is bank a business model on a particular point in time. I mean, that was the point of like Michael Burry, Scion Capital back with uh, through the Great Recession. He was right and he was spot on, but the markets were irrational for another year until he was proven right because eventually, you know, math always wins over time and sometimes emotions and psychology can prevent math from like working through the system so it'll work through the system it just might take you know an extra six to nine months yeah yeah i agree with that and and i and i'll put you on the spot one more time with regards to to more math so with that what do you think is in store for the second half of the year do you have an opinion on where mortgage rates will be yeah so I'll tell you this. This is going to sound like a little bit sadistic, but the longer they stay higher, the better for the overall health of the real estate market. For folks who are in the mortgage business, like me as well, yeah, we absolutely want rates to come down so that you know that we can have refinances and cash out refinances, and we need that for our business. But the bigger issue is the one of housing, and right now. If rates were in the fives right now, we would see a significant run up in real estate values and it would and less inventory and it would exacerbate the issue. So I'm going to answer it two different directions for what I want to happen. For me and my business, if we had a lot more refinance business, we'd all be a lot happier right now. Like just plain as day. It's tough out there. But I'm going to answer this more from a longer term businessman than a shorter term businessman. And the longer term is the people that have staying power and actually bring value in this marketplace, there's a pretty significant washout of loan officers taking place in the business that don't bring value or don't have staying power, like or don't have mental or emotional or financial resilience to markets. And so if it stays longer for three months or six months, in my mind, that's actually going to be better for the folks that are remaining in the business that do have the, the staying power from a market share perspective. It would be a lot easier right now, but it would actually be very challenging for the housing market. We need more inventory and we need that number to get closer to 1.5 to 2 million homes nationwide in order to get to a healthy housing market. So we have a lot of sales taking place um, and a slower trend of growth rate so that, you know, folks like my kids that are, you know, my oldest is early 20s. You know, if, if rates, if values start to run off again, that's going to prolong the the Gen Z from being able to buy for quite a while. So, um, what do I think is going to happen? I think the price stay a little little higher than 
just because that's the the human nature trend. I think they'll stay a little higher for longer, but I do think that's better for long-term thinkers and for the housing market at large. I've been saying something similar to that in that, you know, a lot of people keep talking about, you know, they're not going to buy until they see the interest rates get to, you know, you name it, everybody's got their number. Um, and nobody wants to give up on their interest rates, especially if they're a homeowner currently and they've got that 3% or whatever rate that they have. And, you know, whether it's a first time home buyer or one of the homeowners who are white knuckle gripping their 3% rate, and they're talking about, you know, I'm not going to do something until rates come down. And I just keep telling them that's be careful what you wish for as the rates come down, what is going to happen to property values, you know? And so to your point, it's not the worst thing that could happen for interest rates to stay a little bit elevated and kind of wait for this leveling effect to take place. Yeah. For the, my personal opinion is the people that can't afford to buy now absolutely should hands down, unequivocally, categorically, they should. Why? First of all, they're buying for a home, not as a speculator. You know, there's a very big difference between somebody that's buying as an owner occupied individual for their family versus buying as an investor. So anything I'm looking at now, I'm buying as an investor, but I know, like, I'll just share this. When I bought the house that we're, that we're still in today, I was looking for, I'm not buying a rate. I'm buying a home that is going to be my environment for a decade plus. So my advice is when you find that, and if you can't afford it, like you never, you never, you know, overstep what's, what's financially possible, but if you can't afford it now and you find the home that is ideal for the healthy environment, you buy it. You can always restructure the debt later. The people that wait, I think it's flawed logic because it's kind of like waiting. What is it like a uh, black Friday? It's like, why would you want to go run out to the suit, you know, to when everyone else is there, it's just, it's chaos. And you end up, you know, paying higher, you end up settling for a house that you don't want. I think the priorities are wrong. Find the home. That's the healthiest environment that you can afford because your alternative is renting. And then over time, I mean, here's the, here's the simple math. Fast forward. If you want to know what real estate's going to do in the future, in an aggressive market, it's going to double in 10 years values. In a normal market, it's going to double in 15 years. And in a slow market, it's going to double in 20 years. Sort of like basic, you know, inflation. Right. So if somebody's thinking out, whatever home you're in, it's going to be somewhere from 10 to 20 years that it's going to double, probably about 15. That's a trend rate over the last hundred years. So that would be my advice is flawed thinking to wait till rate, rates come down to buy unless you have to because of affordability. Very well said, Mike. So a special thanks to the Mortgage Reports for making this episode possible. I want to thank all of our listeners and wherever you watch or listen or a combination of the two uh, to your podcast, if you could please rate and review it. That helps promote the, the channel, that helps promote the podcast and um, get our message out to more people. And if there's somebody that you think that can benefit from today's show, uh, be a good friend and share it with that person. So Mike, if our listeners want to connect with you and get more information, what's the best way for them to do so? Yep, absolutely. Um, Mike.hardy at churchillmortgage.com is the, uh, the best email. 
and I have a website which kind of has sort of my my different uh, projects and even some of the things I talked about today. Um, and it's uh, MikeHardyBio.com, MikeHardyBio, bio.com. Uh, on there is also a link where upcoming webinars, you can register for that as well. So any of the listeners that want to talk real estate, um, mortgage market, we actually have a program for uh, loan officers that want to retire, like a retirement program strategy for loan officers. That's something that's super innovative that no one else does. Happy to chat. I love this business, mortgage business, real estate investing. So anything in that world and that I can serve in any way, I'd be happy to. That's awesome, man. Hey, Mike, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. It's been really enjoyable. You've had some incredible insight. I know your time is, is, is important and it's valuable and we appreciate you today. Craig, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and uh, it's been great to get to know you as well. So I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Mortgage Reports podcast. Visit themortgagereports.com for daily mortgage rate updates, news, and advice from experts. 